You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. What truth do you hold on to in a crisis? When everything hits the fan, when it feels like your world has been turned upside down, when it feels like everything that you knew to be right is going wrong, what truth do you hold on to in those moments? It it could be a truth about yourself. I am strong and capable. I can get through this. It might be a truth about the community, your community. We are going to get through this together. We are better when we are unified and able to withstand. Well, John is writing to a group of people in a crisis, a group of people who are experiencing division, a group of people who are experiencing their world turned upside down, and yet he doesn't primarily tell them a truth about themselves or a truth about their community. He tells them a truth about God, what God is like, who God is. And there could almost be no more fundamental question, isn't there? Who is God and what is he like? McCrindle, who is a research institute, did some uh, research, surprisingly, about a couple of years ago in 2021, and they found that around 55% of Australians believe in God or in a higher power, and around 60% pray or meditate to a higher power every single week. And so despite all the the big news that Australia is losing their faith at the last census. It seems like something else is going on. But it's not just believing that God exists. It's what you believe about God. It's who that God is. What is he like? What is his nature? What is the truth about him? That's the reason this book is written, 1 John, what we're going to be looking at over the next eight weeks. John is writing about God to encourage them to keep holding on to him, keep holding not just on our idea about who God is, but the truth about who God is. And these truths that he's trying to communicate to this community are not vague. They are clear, definite, earthy, knowable truths about God. He's writing to encourage them, keep holding on to God, keep holding on to Jesus, keep holding to the one that has been declared to you. 1 John is a, is a wonderful book, a marvellous book, but it's kind of a, a unique book in lots of different ways. You might have noticed in the opening a couple of verses that nowhere is there declared an author of 1 John. In fact, it's one of the only books that we have in the New Testament without an expressed author, along with the book of Hebrews. We assume that the same John who wrote the Gospel of John wrote this book. Uh, There's pretty good uh, similarities in in times of theme. We'll pick that up as we go through. And church history is largely attested to the fact that John has written this book. But even the genre, the style of writing is a little bit different than what we might be used to if you've read any of Paul's other letters, any of the other letters. And I think there's a good reason for that. It's likely that 1 John was written not just to one church or one community, but a large group of people. And so this letter would have been taken from house to house, from community to community, read out loud, because these people were all experiencing a similar problem. And what was that problem? I'm so glad you asked. It's likely 
that false teachers have infiltrated the church and are taking people away from the truth. They're trying to subvert the true knowledge about God with an inferior, subpar knowledge, and people are being taken away and division is reigning in the church. Well, at this stage, you might very well ask, what were they teaching? What were they on about, these people in 1 John? Well, the honest answer is we don't know. We don't know who they were, and we can get a kind of idea of what they were teaching by what, what, by what John is writing against, what he's talking about. But the best guess that we might have is that this were a group of people who had infiltrated these churches, these communities, who had an, a belief that was something similar to a group called the Gnostics. You might have heard of the Gnostics before, you might not have, that's okay. Gnostics or Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And these were a group of people all about a particular kind of knowledge. And they believed a number of different things, but two very important things for us this morning. Let's see if this works for me this morning. There we go. Gnosticism, they had one, that there was a super secret special kind of knowledge that could be that had to be revealed to you, couldn't be taught, couldn't be passed on, had to be revealed to you. And part of that knowledge is that everything that involves matter is bad and everything that involves the spirit is good. Well, what is matter? Just about everything we see around us. So everything we see around us is bad, but our souls are good, our spirits are good. And you, you might very well ask, well, that's kind of weird, Right? We don't really have any Gnostics that we know, so obviously they, they died out. Right? What, what difference would it make? Well, it starts to make an awful lot of difference very quickly. Here's three issues. One, anyone who starts a sentence with God said is very hard to argue with. Right? If you start a sentence, God revealed this to me, God showed this to me, well, how can you argue with that? Right? It becomes very tricky very quickly. But far more importantly, I think, for the community that John writes to, is if bodies are bad, what do you do with God? God is a spiritual being who we believe has taken on flesh in the person of Jesus. Well, they would say, oh, no, he didn't. Because God is good, good is, God is spirit, God is good, God couldn't do that. In fact, they would teach that Jesus didn't have a real body, that he was something more like a phantom or a ghost. So if you went to shake Jesus' hands, your hand would go right through. If Jesus was walking on the beach with you, there would be no footsteps to look at, left behind, because Jesus didn't have a real body. That's a problem. Because if Jesus didn't have a real body then Jesus' body, then no body died on the cross. No body was raised to life. There was no bodily death, no bodily resurrection. And if you end up with no incarnation, no Jesus taking on flesh, no God coming into this world in the person of Jesus, if you, can't, if you enter in with no bodily death and resurrection, what do you have left that Christians are to hold on to? It's kind of like being invited over to someone's house 
for a piece of cake and a cup of tea only to find out the cake has no flour and the tea has no tea bag. Right? You've, you've taken out the main ingredients. What's left? So John is writing to this group, hold on to the truth about Jesus. Hold on to the truth about God. Because what's happening in these places, in these communities, is that division has taken place. It's turned into a he said, she said, I'm with him, I'm with her, I'm with this person, and the church has become divided. So what does John do? Well, let's dive in. This is how he starts out. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testified to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that we, that our joy may be complete. I wonder if you picked up how John starts his letter. He's, he's not messing around. He's not mucking around with his side. He's getting right into it. We declare to you what was from the beginning. Sounds an awful lot like the beginning of John, doesn't it? In the beginning was the word. But then note the language that he starts to use. We declare to you what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. We have seen it and testify and declare to you. This is sensory language. He's declaring to these communities, I've been there with Jesus. I've seen him. I've heard him. I've looked at him. I've touched him. Jesus had a real body. I can't help but think that John was thinking back to that moment after the resurrection when Jesus is there with all his disciples in the upper room. Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Can't help but think that John is reminding them of what has been passed on, that Jesus really had a body, that they were there in the room with him. They've seen him, they've touched him, they've heard him. Because everything else hinges on this truth. Because if Jesus didn't have a real body, and Jesus didn't really die on the cross, and Jesus didn't really rise to new life, And this whole thing is over. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we of all people are to be most pitied. We are the most miserable people on earth. The death and resurrection of Jesus is what Christianity stands and falls on. If that is out, then everything is out with it. Everything hinges on this truth. But he's reminding, it really happened. I was there. Jesus really died. Jesus really rose again. And why does it matter? Well, he reaches forward, not just to their division, not just to their disunity, but he wants something for them. He wants them to have fellowship and joy. 
We declare to you what we've seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. That truly our fellowship is the Father with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship growing up for me in the church. Fellowship meant an extended time of small talk with people I didn't know very well over a lukewarm cup of coffee. Right? That's not what fellowship is. It's far deeper than that. It's all of us united following Jesus together. This is a diverse group of people. I don't know if you've looked around and seen that on a Sunday morning. This is a group of people that would never be seen together but for Jesus. But because of Jesus, our unity is so strong. We are together following him. That's fellowship, looking forward, walking together with him. But he also wants joy. This is not a drudge. This is a joy. He says in verse 4, we're writing things that our joy may be complete. I find it interesting. He says our joy. It's not just that his joy will be incomplete, although it would be. There is something missing when he knows that people are divided, when people are missing the truth about Jesus, when people are missing the truth about God. But there's something missing for them. See, when you've replaced the truth about God for a lie, you don't get more joy, you get less. Knowing who God is brings us into a great joy Because what greater joy could there be than that God loves us and has adopted us into his family? He wants them to know that joy. He goes on. Verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. It's interesting, isn't it, that John, writing to a divided group, doesn't remind them a truth about themselves. He doesn't remind them a truth about their community. He reminds them. He starts with who God is, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And it's not just that light is God, that what we see around us, that God is everywhere, that God is with us. No, he's saying something precise about God's character. See, there is no darkness in the light. When you turn on the light in a dark room, the darkness is dispelled. There is no darkness with God. It's something about his character. He is perfect. I like what David Allen said about God. He says this, talking about this verse. In him is no shade, no speck, no stain of imperfection. In him is no fault, failure or falsehood. There is no debit, no deviation, no dishonesty in God. God is not only good, God is perfect in his goodness. So what difference does that make? Well, John goes on in verse 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with him, if we say that we have relationship with God, if we say, I belong with him, while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's that word again, fellowship. If we say that we have fellowship with him, 
While we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. He wants us to move past not just believing in the existence of God. Believing in God means something. It transforms our life. It needs to be more than just an idea in our head. It transforms our very being. Someone once asked me, if you woke up tomorrow morning and suddenly didn't believe in God anymore, what would be different about your life? If the answer is not, not much more than I have a spare two hours on a Sunday morning, right? The light has not transformed us. Knowing who God is has to change our whole life. And if we say that we know him, that we're with him, while we're walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. I mean, that describes a lot of us, doesn't it? We do not do what is true, not just about God, but in everything. It's, it, there's nothing more common than knowing something and not living it out. How, how many of us know that we should eat healthier, right? That we, we know that we should get our 10,000 steps in, that we know what we should be doing, right? How many of us went to a McDonald's drive through this week, right? More of us than we'd like to tell, right? How many of us ate that extra bit of cake, right? Chucked on the tally as soon as we could. Right? We know things that are good for us and we don't do them. We do the things we know that aren't helpful for us because we know the truth and we don't live out the truth. We lie. But on the other side, John says that there is a great blessing to be had when we walk in the truth. If we walk in the light as he is himself in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I, I love this. This idea that there is a blessing that not only we get, but that we get as a result of our obedience to Jesus, as a result of our walking in the light. He talks about fellowship and he talks about purification. On Friday night, we were sitting with the youth group and we, we asked them the question, what, what grows your love for Jesus? And what kills your love for Jesus? It was interesting that I think the number one response, what grows my love for Jesus, is other Christians, being around other people who know the truth, who can support, who can encourage, who can pray for me. What kills my love? Not having that. Not being around other people. Right? There is something about us walking in the light that is strengthening not just for us, but for us, right? We are blessed as a community when people walk in the light. We have a greater fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There is a kind of reminder that happens when we walk in the light that we only do so through God's grace, that he is the one who purifies us. It's not our works, it's him. We are reminded of the gospel, of grace, what God has given us in Jesus when we walk in the light. So what does it look like to walk in the light or to walk in darkness? I think it kind of looks like what was read out to us in John chapter 3. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds are done in God. There is an openness to God here. 
It's not just, did I do the right thing or did I not do the right thing? It's the orientation of our hearts. Do we, are we open to God? Are we aimed at God or are we aimed away? Have we turned to God or have we turned away from him? And I think one of the reasons that this passage often stings us, we read these words and go, well, that's great, John, but to be honest with you, I don't walk in the light. I know I walk in the darkness. I know my deeds are evil. I know I don't live out the truth. I feel it in my heart. I feel the guilt and the shame. I feel the overwhelming sense from Satan. You are a great, big, dirty sinner. I feel it. What if I haven't done all these things? Well, how beautiful a truth to hold on to the next lot of verses are. Just read this from verse 9. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, my beloved ones, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Everyone, look right at me for a moment. In those moments when we feel overwhelmed with our guilt and shame, we have a choice to either confess our sins or to cover them up. And there is nothing that feels more natural than covering up your sins. I've got little kids. I don't have to teach them to cover up their sins. They just do that, right? When they make a mistake, when they do the wrong thing, the thing that they know is wrong, they, they don't come and confess their sins in joy and gladness, so they hide. That's what feels natural to us, to hide from the truth. Confession is hard. It is a hard thing to own up to what you have done, to say, I am sorry. But what a beautiful truth it is. That verse 9, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful, that's Jesus, Jesus who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No, no, it doesn't say might. It doesn't say could. It doesn't say hopefully one day maybe. If we confess our sins, Jesus who is faithful and just will do it will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a truth to hold on to in a crisis. If we confess our sins, he will forgive them. And how can he do such a thing? How can Jesus forgive us our sins? How can we know that? How can that be pressed into our hearts? We'll just read verse 1 and 2 from chapter 2. We know this is the case because if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What authority does Jesus have to forgive sins? Because he is our advocate and he is our atonement. 
He is our advocate and our atonement. An advocate is someone who stands on our behalf pleading. It has the image of a lawyer. And Jesus is standing before the Father saying, This person, I know, they are a great big dirty sinner. That Jimmy, great big dirty sinner. But he is with me. That person is with me. He is with me. She is with me. I am advocating for them. I have cleansed them. I have forgiven them. And how can Jesus say such an outrageous thing? Because he is our atonement. What he advocates is that our sins have been atoned for. Atonement is a word that means satisfying or repaying a debt. There is a debt that had to be repaid, a debt that had to be satisfied. That guilt and shame that we feel when we sin, that points to something far greater. Because sin does something, doesn't it? Sin separates us from God. Sin causes separation from each other. The book of Romans says that the wages of sin is death. So how can we pay that debt? How can we pay the debt of separation? How can we pay the debt of death? Well, we don't have to. Why? Because Jesus did. And that's why it matters that Jesus had a real body. Because Jesus, who had a real body and had a real death and had a real resurrection from the dead, did so that real people with real sins could be really, really forgiven. That's why this matters. Jesus, with his real body, hung on the cross in my place, in your place, so that our sins might be paid for, so that our debt might be paid for. The debt has been satisfied. And so Jesus can stand before the Father as an advocate and say, that man, that woman, that child, that boy, that girl is mine. I have paid for them with my life. They are free forever. Past, present, future sin. Forever. And that's a truth to hold on to, isn't it? That's a truth to hold on to when it feels like the world is upside down and left is right and right is left and up is down. That's a truth to hold on to in the crisis. That God is good. That Jesus really actually came. That he really actually died. That he really actually rose again so that people like me and people like you could be really, really forgiven. So this week, when you feel your sin overwhelming, when you feel that shame, when you feel that guilt, I want you to remember that truth. Jesus is our advocate before the Father because he atoned for our sin. He paid for our sin so that we could be free forever. Let me pray for us now.